Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Remember, this is a, near the end of the, of the book, like Paul does, he throws a whole bunch of stuff together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Be, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as we continue to unpack some of Paul's teaching in this section of his letter to the Romans, we're going to see more specifically how we are to avoid evil and hold on to the good and showing genuine love to each other. If you remember the last time we were together, and I know it's been a few weeks, we had looked about saying no to evil and yes to good and loving one another honestly. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of pick up for where we left off. And before I do, and that's going to be in verse 11, by the way, we're going to pick up in verse 11. I have to make a statement that I hope you hear. Everything we're going to look at tonight, you can't do. I'm just going to make it clear. You can't do it. If you're someone that is watching online or you're here tonight and, and you say to yourself, I want to know what God says because I want to do a better job. You've already started off on the wrong foot. What he's talking about here can only be done by those who have been saved who have the Spirit of God living within them, and He gives you, us the ability to live this out. When Paul lays these things out for us, they're good measurements for us as to whether or not we are really capable of doing these things and whether or not the Spirit's in us. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a Christian today, the Bible says that God's going to be working on you in these areas to make you more like Jesus. That's His plan. He's not in a hurry to make you perfect all at once. But if you've trusted Him as your Savior, His Spirit who's come to indwell you and to seal you, as we've already looked at in our study, is going to be the one who will start to live these things out. So as we look at these, be asking God to show you, are these some of the things that he's wanting to do in your life? Don't move into the realm of, I need to do a better job in these areas, because you can't do it. It only can be done by God. So go to Romans chapter 12, listen to verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now, when it says don't be slothful in zeal and be firm in spirit and serve the Lord, zeal is a good thing. Go down to uh, chapter 12 and verse 8. We've just seen, or, or back up if you will in your Bibles, to chapter 12, verse 8, where we just saw the different gifts and all that. And verse 8, remember it said, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. All right, and then of course the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Zeal is a good thing. God wants us to be Zealous. He wants us to be energetic. He wants us to put effort into what we're doing. Yet, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. A lot of Christians over the years have done a lot of damage for the sake of Christ in their zeal without learning to let the Spirit of God control them. Go back to Romans chapter 10. Back in Romans chapter 10, look at, remember what Paul said about the Jews. 
He said, brothers, chapter 10, verse 1, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, talking about the Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So let me ask you a question real quick. What did the Jews do in their zeal because they lacked knowledge? They killed who? They killed the Messiah, their own Messiah. They killed him. Of course, the Bible said that was going to happen, and God knew this, and it was all a part of God's plan. But don't miss the fact the Jews were zealous. The Pharisees were zealous. They, they tithed on their mint and their cumin, and they would do all this stuff, and they put a lot of effort into things, but it was without knowledge. We need to be not slothful in our zeal, but fervent in what? In the Spirit. This is the important key. Whatever we do, we must do it with zeal and not laziness, because it's God whom we serve. But we must do it in His strength. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, or forward in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 28 and 29. Would you ever accuse Paul of being lazy? No, he wasn't. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, may we, we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. We're not going to have you turn there, but if you want to look later on at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul says, look, you know, uh, he said, I take serious my relationship with Jesus. And we should. But don't move into the realm of thinking that you can do it in your own strength. We need to be not lazy or slothful in our zeal, but we need to be fervent in the Spirit. That's why we need to learn, and you're going to see this more tonight as we look at some of these things, the, the importance of continual prayer. Learning how to pray without ceasing. Well, Jim, how can I pray without ceasing? I've got a job. I've got, I've got kids to take care of. I've got all these things. No, we need to learn how to be in constant communication with the Father, in constant communication with the Spirit of God who lives within us, and allowing Him to lead us and guide us and teach us. It was kind of funny. I uh, was talking to a friend of mine today in his office, and he was telling me about what happened and how he was visiting some people down uh, in the southern part of Florida. And as he was on his way back home, and it had been a very long, busy day, he sensed the Spirit of God tell him that he was to stop in, a, in the Fort Pierce area and go see this individual. But being human, he said, nah, I mean, and he pushed the thought out of his mind. And so he called his wife and said, hey, I'll be home at such and such a time. She said, we won't be there. Me and my daughter are going to be actually down in Fort Pierce visiting so-and-so. The same person that God had told him on his way back up 95 to stop and see. And so he said, I think I'm supposed to stop and see this guy, you know. But that's what I'm talking about, is learning how to recognize the Spirit's leading, recognizing the Spirit kind of directing you, and living that way in which God gets to call the shots. We're not lazy, and we have a tendency to be, but God's real patient with us, and He's a good way, He has lots of good ways of getting us where He wants us to be. Go to verse 12, Romans chapter 12 again, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I'm going to read this to you again because I'm going to show you from Scripture. You're going to find these three are usually all combined in the Scriptures. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Go back to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, look at verses 18 through 28. You're going to see all these are together. 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's tribulation, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In what? In hope. There's that word hope. We got tribulation already. Now we got hope and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Holy Spirit, you see it's a capital S, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to, what's that next word? Pray. There's the three right there, to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says we are to rejoice in the hope that we have. We're to be patient in tribulation and suffering, but we're to be constant in what? In prayer. And again, I'm going to show you the scripture has these three combined. There's going to be trouble in this world. Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. But he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. Have hope. Rejoice in the hope that we have that God's in control. And even though it may be bumpy between here and when we see him face to face, he's got it. But we also need to stay in constant communication with him in order to be able to make it. Go to Romans chapter five. Look at verses one through 11. You'll see the three again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the what? Hope. There it is of the glory of God. We rejoice in the fact we know we're saved and we're going to go to heaven. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There's tribulation, knowing that suffering produces endurance Endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Oh, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you say, what is the prayer part? Well, that's the whole, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. That's that constant communication. Go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? 
prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus finally brothers whatever's true whatever's honorable whatever's just whatever's pure whatever's lovely whatever's commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you don't miss this. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer, they're all combined. You can't, I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, or I'm just going to buck up, or I'm going to keep a stiff upper lip, or I'm going to be tough in trouble. No, you need God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. What does he say next? In me you will have peace. Then he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Did you catch that? In the world, you're going to have trouble. In me is where you get your peace. And that's what I want to talk to you about. This is something a lot of Christians don't fully understand. And that's why they kind of stay at a baby level in their walk with the Lord. And they, they're thankful that they've, they, they've trusted in Jesus as their Savior. But they never learn how to walk in the Spirit, as the Bible says. And unfortunately, there's, there's people out there and preachers out there that'll teach you that walking in the Spirit is makes your eyes roll back in your head and your tongue do stuff that you don't know what it's doing. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It's actually something that is very, the Bible says the, 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 the one who's under the control of the Spirit still has control of their life. It talks about that in Corinthians. And so I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that we should be constant in prayer, continually in communication with the Father. I love how Jesus, when he walked to the tomb to raise Lazarus under the direction of the Father, as the Lord told him, let Lazarus die, and I'm going to have you do something even greater to demonstrate some things. He walks up to the tomb and he prays out loud and he says this, Father, I thank you that you've, all, you all, that you've heard me. Actually, I know you always hear me. I just said that for the benefit of the people around here. He was walking to the tomb in constant communication with the Father. He just happened to say that one out loud. Folks, do you understand that when I'm teaching and preaching, I'm in constant communication with the Father. Oh, I've got notes and I've, I've done study and I've prepared. But at the same time, he will, while I'm teaching, say, take him to this verse too. Or tell you what, take that off and save that for a little bit later in the study or another day. And we need to learn to become those people who learn to talk with the Father and recognize his leadership as we go. And that is what it means to walk in the Spirit, be led of the Spirit. But the Bible also calls it being filled with the Spirit. The word filled simply means being under the control of the Spirit. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. You're in Philippians there. Just back up here at one book to Ephesians 5. And by the way, this is going to sound a lot like not being slothful in zeal and fervent in the Spirit. Look carefully then, verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine or under the control of alcohol, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, listen closely. The Bible says that we are, in the Greek, it's to be being filled with the Spirit. Now, for years... 
a lot of you have probably gone to churches where they teach that you need to go have the preacher lay hands on you so you can get filled with the Spirit or you need another filling. The Bible says very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. You've already got, when Jesus came to live inside of you, everything you need. You don't need to go have a certain guy lay hands on you so you can get more of the Spirit. You don't need to have a, another anointing. You've been anointed and you have the Spirit of God within you. But you have to learn how to let Jesus, who's in you, have control. And that's a process of learning over time how to listen, how to pray, how to trust. You take the scriptures and read them and get them in your heart and believe them. And when you do that, you become, well, the Bible says being, being filled. And I love how God said, look, don't be under the control of alcohol, but be under the control of the spirit. Let him have control. Be being filled well, how do we do that? Well, the scripture gave us some example of that. We're to focus on the Lord and his word and with each other and praying. But go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verses 16 through 19. In 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice. How often? Always. By the way, it's kind of hard to grumble when you're rejoicing. Rejoice always. Pray what? There it is again. There it is again. Be someone that just lives in their relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. No. The Bible actually says there's a lot of people that go to church aren't going to go to heaven. There's a lot of people that are going to one day stand before God and say, didn't I do this? Didn't I preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. You had no relationship with me. But Lord, I worked for you. See, that's the problem, Jesus is going to say. Your faith was in what you did for me, not in me. Now, keep reading. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench, who? The Spirit. Do you realize that Jesus lives within you and me and daily is anxious to take control? to lead, to guide, to use us for his purposes, to bless us in many ways. And many of us get up and try to live for Jesus. Jesus says, no, I think Romans chapter 12 started off this way. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. Surrender yourself daily, Lord. You saved me. You live within me. You've got a plan for today and I want to walk with you. And I'm just going to keep talking to you and I'm going to spend some time in your word and I'm going to spend some time with other believers to encourage me and to encourage them. And folks, let me just tell you, I don't have time to tell you about all that God did on my trip that I just got back from in New Orleans. But I went there for one purpose. And when I came back, we looked back and saw five different things that God had in mind to do through me and in my life at that time. It was an amazing trip. I, I, I literally could take the rest of the hour just telling you the God stories. But it's neat when you learn how to walk in the spirit, how much God can do way more than you ever imagined. All right. Now. Go to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14. Jesus had told the disciples after he rose from the dead to wait in Jerusalem until what happened? Until they received. He didn't tell them wait until Pentecost. That was the day that the promise happened. He just told them to wait in, the, in 
in Jerusalem until they received the promised Holy Spirit, which he had told them in chapter 14 and 15 and 16 of John, that was, the Holy Spirit was going to be, he was with them, but he was going to be in them. In Acts chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? To prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They went back and they spent time together and they just, at this point, are they indwelt by the Holy Spirit? No, they were told to go wait until the promise happened. What happens in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes to live within them. And, that, and so here they were doing what he said, devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 2, look at verses 42 through 47. And once the Holy Spirit came to indwell them, they just started preaching. People started to gather and 3,000 people got saved. Those 3,000, along with the 120. But I, I read a devotional this morning. Let me just tell you this. He talked about how that 120 went to 3,120 in one day. He said a lot of our churches of 3,000 members would be very impressed to add 120 members in one day. But can you imagine a church of 120 adding 3,000 in one day? He said we miss out on so much that the Lord wants to do when we try to do things for him in our own energy. They, those that believe, devoted themselves to the word, that's the apostles' teaching, to who? The fellowship that's spending time with each other. The breaking of the bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and what? Prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all who has any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to being together. Remember, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the word of God and the Lord's Supper, which reminded them of why they're together. And God said, I got it from here. I got it from here. Watch what I do in your midst as you just focus on me and loving each other and learning how to talk to me. Luke chapter 18, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 1, Jesus told a story that we would understand that we are to pray and never give up. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Some of you are saying, Jim, you said we're going to finish chapter 12 tonight. We will. Relax. We will. We're going to pick up a little bit of speed, cover more than just one verse at a time. But right now it's still verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Go back to Acts chapter 2. We just read something that I want you to see, and it's going to be illustrated again in chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, look at verses 42. Actually, we'll just start in verse 44. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Jump over to chapter 4 of Acts. Look at verses 32 through 37. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Now this, I want you to hear me closely. This is not communism. This is not where everybody brings all their stuff, puts it in an equal pile, and then they distribute it again. No. The Bible's very clear, because if you were to keep reading in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, the section I didn't read, uh, Barnabas actually sells a piece of his property and gives it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, they do that, but they keep some of the money for themselves and pretend they gave the whole amount because they wanted to look bigger than they were. And when when Peter confronts them on this, he said, wasn't this yours to do with as you wanted? And after it was sold, wasn't it still at your disposal? Why have you decided to lie? Folks, Christianity is not teaching communism where everybody has to put it in a pile and get it all equally. But the attitude is this. If I have a pickup truck and you need a pickup truck because you don't have a pickup truck, but you need to move, my pickup truck is yours. Here's my keys. We're brothers. We're family. And I love that. Except when I was in New Orleans speaking at this church, I was staying with friends that I've known for 30-something years. Becky and I were in a young couple's Bible study with these people back way, way back when there was no Nicole. But we, we, we lived life together like this. We, we ate together in each other's homes, and we spent time together, and we prayed together, we played golf together, we played softball together, we went to church together. We, 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 we just loved on each other to the point that even though since we've been in New Orleans on staff at a church there, I pastored in Chicago, and then I pastored here, and I've been traveling now for the last 17 years. And even though we haven't even lived in the same parts of the country, we're still knit together to the point that when I was preaching in New Orleans, they said, you're staying at our house, which I had no problem with because they got a nice house. <laughs> They live on a lake, and they're members of a nice golf course <laughs> where the pros play. So I'm like, they said, hey, do you want to stay with us, or do you want to get a hotel? Let me pray about it, you. And uh, um, here's the deal. When I was there, I had to get in a day early because I had to get out of here before the hurricane because the Orlando airport was shutting down, and I literally could call and say, hey, I'm not showing up when I thought. I'm going to come in a day earlier. They said, no problem. We'll pick you up. When I got there now, I, don't, I have a whole day that's not scheduled already. I said, can I borrow your truck and go visit friends from churches that I had been involved with here? And their attitude was, here are the keys. Not, well, that's a nice truck. No, we had everything in common. You know, and for years we've even told people, look, we live on the beach. You want to you come to Florida? Come see us. Come see us. We don't charge much. That was a joke. That was a joke. But in this too, we must serve the Lord, listen closely though, with wisdom and the Spirit's guidance. Paul's not teaching that we're to give everything away without prayer. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You may be surprised at this, but you know how the Bible says that the church is to take care of the widows in the church? The Bible actually said that they had to go through a vetting process before they were to be taken care of. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 3 through 8. It says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. 
command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul said, look, I want you to take care of the widows in the church. But first, let their family members take care of them. That's what God's design is. Now, if they don't have any family, or let's just assume that this Christian widow has family, but they don't know the Lord and they don't care about her, well, then the church should take care of her. But there are requirements. There's, there's a process. Don't just think, oh, i got to go and share everything with everybody. No, let the Spirit lead you on when. Guys, do you realize that not everybody that's standing on the street corner with a sign is, is legit? Years ago, my wife and I were living in New Orleans, like I said, and I'm a member of a big church, and I'm one of eight pastors on staff. We had a food closet, I'm sorry, a food pantry, a clothes closet. We had showers. We had places, things that they could do for work. And this guy was standing there on the corner with a sign that says, we'll work for food. So I pulled off. I got out of my car. I went up to him and I said, look, I'm an associate pastor of a church right down the street from here, walking distance. Come with me. We'll give you a job, we'll get you clothes, we'll give you food, we'll give you a shower. He goes, get out of here, man. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm making $400 a day. You have to realize this is in the early 90s. I'm making $400 a day standing here on this corner. I've waited for a long time to get this corner. I ain't giving it up. He had a sign that said he'll work for food, but that wasn't the real deal. But are there people that are legit? How are you going to know? The Spirit. There are going to be times the Spirit says, help. And He's going to show you how and all that. There are going to be times He's going to say, move on. And it might not be that that person's not legit. It might be He has someone else in mind that He wants to bless. We need to learn how to do this, again, in the Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. You might be surprised at what you see here. See, the early church was expecting the return of Jesus to happen any moment. And that's not a bad thing, because Paul himself didn't know when it was going to happen, but he was to live ready that Jesus might come at any moment. And Jesus had them teaching, be ready, he could come at any moment. In 2 Thessalonians 3, though, look at verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but we toil, labor, we, with toil and labor, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Keep reading. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anybody doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, one of the problems of the early church was when Paul and them were teaching that the church, Jesus could return at any moment, a lot of them were like, um, I'm part of this new church and everybody's sharing everything they have and nobody has any need. And if I say you got a need, they'll meet it. And some people thought, I'll quit my job. I'll live off of the church. By the way, having been in pastoral ministry for years, there are families that literally make their living going church to church to church for the handouts. Whenever they'd see me come into the door, they'd turn around and go, oh, he, <laughs> he knows our game. But 
I've even heard Christians say, oh, Jesus could come back. I'm going to run out my credit cards. And when Jesus comes and gets me, Satan can pay the bill. That's a horrible attitude to have, folks. But hospitality is something that we're to be share, showing, but we need to do it with wisdom and the leadership of the Spirit. And we're not always going to do it right. We're not always going to do it perfectly. But if there's a need that God has opened your eyes and heart to, and He's asking you to meet that need, be willing to do so how He leads you to do it. Oh, and by the way, don't assume that the church should meet that need. Did you notice in the story of the Good Samaritan that the Good Samaritan didn't take the guy to the church or to the synagogue? He took care of the guy's needs out of his own pocket. And actually, I think the Bible teaches that a lot of the needs that God brings across your path as you're out in the world, He wants you to use you to bless and to meet. Actually, it's another study for another whole time. The Bible actually teaches that the benevolence in the church should mainly be for the church members. The Bible's really clear on that. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Look at verses 9 and 10. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Don't let us grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Go to 1 Timothy 6. Look at verses 17 through 19. By the way, if you're new online to my teaching style, you think, man, he gives a lot of scripture. I'm going to tell you why. I don't have anything to say. But God does. He's got a lot. 1 Timothy 6, look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for them treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see the attitude there? They're ready to share. That's showing hospitality. There's many more levels to hospitality and everything, and a lot has to do with your homes and stuff. We don't have time to get into all that tonight. But let me just say this. In that pile of instructions that Paul dumps on them here in chapter 12, he says we need to be people that not only are serious of what we're doing, not slothful in our zeal, fervent in the spirit, constant in prayer. We're also to be ready to share with people around us. By the way, you know why you could be able to do that? Because you so trust that God's got you. If he says, give this to him, you can give it to him. But that's my last one. Actually, if God told you to give your last one, don't you think God knows that's your last one? And don't you think God's got maybe a better one? Or more? Actually, the Bible actually teaches that when we trust him, he who gives seed for sowing and bread for food will multiply your seed for sowing. When we trust him and we let him use us for the purposes of sharing with others, God says, man, that person's not storing it for themselves. They're sharing it. I'm going to give them more to share. And he does. He does. Again, don't turn that into if you make a check to Just the Preacher Ministries, God will pay off your mortgage. No, there's preachers out there that will say that. I'm not saying that. They take it to an unbiblical realm, but the Bible truth is there. God says, if you trust me and you let me do through you what I ask you to do by faith, I will bless you so that you can do it more. All right, 
Now I'm going to jump to verses 14 through 21. Go back to Romans 12. We've looked at one verse at a time. Now we're going to cover the last verses in the time we have left. And here's why. I think they're all connected. You'll see in the context here. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the keys to living this way is the attitude of the second half of verse 16. Look at the second half of verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The only way we can really move into this last section and allow the Spirit of God who lives within us to live this through us is to stop. Well, I'm just going to say it this way. Get over yourself. We have a tendency to defend our rights. Well, the Bible says, I gave all my rights to who? To Jesus. He's my Lord. I'm his servant. The Bible actually says I'm his slave. He gets to call the shots. Now, the good thing is, our Lord Jesus, who is our master, is not a domineering, harsh taskmaster, as the third servant in the parable of talents thought, but he's a patient, loving father. He only wants our service to be willing. It's out of our own submission, our own will. He never forces us to do anything. Oh, he's good at getting us where he wants us to be, but he's not a jerk about it. At this, in the same way, when we trust that God is good and that he's us, our protector and our provision, we don't see ourselves as better than anybody. We're humble and we're willing to share. We don't, when people are out there and do us wrong, and by the way, that's going to happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there's going to be people that do you wrong. But when that happens, we so trust that God's got it, we don't worry about it. But if you see yourself as more important than you should, when people do you wrong, you will be offended. How dare they? Don't they know who I am? That's subconsciously what's going on in our minds when we're offended. They, they didn't respect me. You know what? I don't care if you respect me. My Lord has said that he loves me and he's got me and he's going to take care of me. And one day, no matter what you do to me, it'll all be taken care of and I'm to trust him. Listen to the scripture speak to this. I wrote in my notes here, when we lose sight of the fact that we are loved children of God and that he'll withhold no good thing from us, we tend to want to defend our rights and get back at those around us who may be out to get us, but that's not how Jesus teaches us to live. He wishes for us to be peacemakers who bless people and don't curse them. Go to Matthew 5. Look at verses 7 through 12 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, 
What, and what will happen to them? They're going to receive mercy. You want mercy from God, don't you? Well, be merciful to the people around you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus himself said, if they're going to do this to me, they're going to do it to you. So, if the world called Jesus demon-possessed, a half-breed, that's what they were calling him when they called him a Samaritan, because the Samaritans were the Jews that had intermingled and married with the Babylonians, and so they were considered a half-breed, they weren't going to have anything to do with them. Jesus was called a a demon-possessed and a Samaritan, and even though he was God and he made every single one of them, he, he took it, didn't he? And he still loved those people and died for them and went to the cross for them, and we too should have that same attitude. I don't see myself as better than you. I'm going to seek to be a peacemaker. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. It can't get any more clear than this. Look at verses 20 through 23. 1 Peter 2. Verses 20 through 23. So for what, Peter says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you, this you for sorry, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I've shared this with you before, but if you remember back in John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate says to Jesus, because Jesus won't speak. He goes, won't you say something to me? Don't you realize I have the authority to have you put to death or to have you released? And Jesus calmly looked at him and said, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my father. In other words, Pilate, you might be a big shot in the eyes of the world and all your people, and you might have the fancy clothes in the big house, but I'm not impressed by you. I'm impressed by God. And the fact that you're in this position is because God determines who's in authority and who's not. And I'm not looking at you, Pilate. I'm looking to him who's in control. And he said that he's got me, even in tribulation. I think it goes this way. Rejoice in hope. We're to be patient in tribulation and constant in what? Prayer. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus himself endured the cross for the joy set before him, rejoicing in hope. He was patient in tribulation and trusting himself to him who judges justly. And he was in continual communication with the Father. And that's how he wants us to be. Let me ask you a couple easy questions. The Bible says the days are evil. Would you not agree the days are evil? Are they getting worse? Are there wicked people out there in governments that are planning evil things? Are they going to stop? Well, when Jesus comes back, good answer. When Jesus comes back, 
Hey, by the way, Rick got one right. Write it. Put the date down. <laughs> write the date down. All right. Here's the, here's the deal. But in the midst of this, Christians should not be freaking out. We should not be freaking out because the elections might not have gone like we thought they were going to go. Folks, the Bible says it's going to get that way. But we who are of Christ and have Christ within us and are learning to walk in the Spirit, who are being filled, be being filled by constant communication with the Father, drinking of Jesus and getting His peace, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We live in this world and we love people. We vote, but we don't think our vote's going to change anything. Only Jesus changes people. Votes don't change people. Jesus changes people. But we're to be salt and light in the days that are left. We're to be fervent in the spirit. Not slothful in our zeal. We're not to be, well, God's just going to do what God's going to do. I'll sit on my couch. No, no, no. He's got us here for a reason. Let him use you. But don't think that if we could just all work a little harder, we can get this thing turned around. Read your Bibles. Jesus said it's not going to happen. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? But... How do we consider others more important than ourselves? Jesus gave us that answer in, in Philippians chapter 2. It comes from understanding our relationship with Jesus Christ. Really resting in what he's said and who we are. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have this mind in us because it's Christ in us who had that same attitude, but he didn't see of himself, even though he was God, he didn't claim equality with God, something to be grasped. Could he have def defended himself when they came to arrest him? Sure. He, it was proven by when they came in John 18 to arrest him. And he said, who have you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. Our translations say he said, I am he, which he was added just to clarify. But he just simply said the words, I am. And what happened to that whole crowd of people that came to arrest him? They all fell backwards onto their backs. They were like knocked down by him just saying, I am. He had the authority. He even turned to his disciples and he said, don't you think I could just call a legion of angels and have them come and take care of this? But that wouldn't fulfill the scripture. I came to submit myself to the Father's purposes for me on this earth, and that's going to be a good thing for you. And all I ask you now as I go back to be with the Father is that you live in the same way, that you live out the purpose God has for you, and you love the people around you even though they persecute you. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, look at the verses 1 through 3. When it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, you skip the first two verses. I actually had, I skipped them for you. He said in verses 1 and 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he goes on and says, Don't anything from self as ambition. It only can come out of you being so trusting in Christ that he's got you. 
You know, for years when I was a young preacher, I used to be jealous of the preachers who preached in bigger churches or bigger settings because I wanted to preach in front of thousands. Until I finally got to the point where I realized, if God's the one that's called me to preach, he's going to set my appointments, and I'll go wherever he wants me to go. And where God wants me to go, no man can shut the door. But if God shuts the door, nobody, including Jim Johnson, is going to be able to open it. So when I stopped trying to be everything I wanted to be and said, Lord, what do you want me to be? I've actually enjoyed and seen him do amazing things. And the same thing for you. I'm going to say it again. Jim Johnson's translation. Get over yourself. <laughs> and trust that the Lord loves you. Any comfort from his love. Any participation in the spirit. Are you walking in the spirit? Is he giving you his peace and his joy and that hope and tribulation? Then you're going to be all right. When you start finding yourself getting a bellyache and nervous and all this stuff, you've started to take your eyes off of Jesus and put them on the world or yourself. And you're not going to like it. John the Baptist, was he a pretty important person for a season? I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time, but in John chapter 3, verses 26 and following, they came to John and they said, look, that guy you baptized over there at the Jordan, everybody's going to him now. And I love what John the Baptist said. He said, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. I fulfilled my role. He must increase. I must decrease. By the way, this means moving away from our natural inclination to live for self and to avoid certain people. And we must show mercy and compassion to those people when God is prompting us to. I put in my notes, you know who he just brought to mind. There are some people that are harder to love than others. Would we not agree with that? If you say, oh, I think everybody's the same, you're lying. There are some people that are harder to love. <laughs> you just lost all your points again, Rick. So. Go to Romans chapter 12 again. Look at verses 15 and 16. Romans 12, 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with who? The lowly. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. Verses 18 through 26. There are actually people in the church that we have trouble with. 18 through 26, 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 26. But as it is, God arranged the parts, it says members, but the parts in the body, each one of them is he chose. If all were a single part, where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts, but one body. Now the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, we bestow with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Listen, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members of the parts may all have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one part is honored, all rejoice together. I'm not going to ask you, because we all come from different churches, so I don't need a bunch of different answers, but unfortunately, it probably would all be the same answer. 
is this what's happening in your local congregation? Is everybody of one mind and all consider everything together? Or do you have schisms? Do you have groups? Do you have factions? And unfortunately, that is the case. But then again, not all who say they're Christians are Christians. And it's not our job to figure out who is and who isn't. But the Bible says, as far as it lies with you, live at peace with everyone. But Jim, you don't know what that person did. I don't care. Did they kill you? Well, no. Did they at least spit on you? Well, no. Did they rip your beard out? <laughs> no. Did they nail you to a cross? No. Well, Jesus had a lot of people all do that to him. And what was his attitude? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't, wasn't up there saying, boy, one of these days you're all going to regret this. No, the whole time he was saying, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Don't forget God is the judge. He actually knows everything, even people's hearts and their motives. He's going to deal with sin and inequity. But don't forget that we too were children of the devil. And God saved us. He gave us mercy. He wishes to give your enemy the same mercy. You want to take it to another level? Are there terrorists that have been capturing Christians and cutting their heads off? Actually, a lot more than you realize because a lot of the stuff doesn't even make the news. But do you realize that this book that we're studying was written by a terrorist who was persecuting the church, traveling all around, capturing them with permission from the authorities, having them arrested, taking them and having them put to death? And Jesus saved Paul. Saul was his name at the time. And we're sitting here now today, almost 2,000 years later, studying the word of God coming through a former terrorist. Yet how many Christians see what's going on in the news and say, I can't wait until they get theirs. Instead of praying for them, that they would come to know Jesus too. But don't worry. If they deserve punishment because they rejected Jesus, Jesus and the only way they can be forgiven, they'll get it. But we don't have to worry about that. God said he's the judge. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54, don't have to turn there because of time. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 3, we see Stephen being stoned for preaching the gospel. And while he's being stoned, he yells this out. And he prays this prayer out loud because he was constant in prayer. He said, Father, don't hold this against them. He wasn't saying, Lord, I hope you're taking names. He said, Father, don't hold this against them. Folks, some of you have kids that have done you wrong. Some of you have wives or husbands that have done you wrong. Some of you have family members, brothers or sisters right now that you're estranged from. I'm not saying that it'll all be reconciled here, but the Bible says, as far as it lies with you, be at peace with them. The Bible says, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Don't you think we need his forgiveness? Give up the hurt. Give up the, recon, uh, the, the recompense that you think needs to happen. 
Well, Jim, I'll, I'll forgive them as soon as they ask for it. No. Jesus wasn't waiting for people to ask him to forgive them. The whole time that he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were mocking him. He says he's, he's God. Come off the cross if you're the Christ. Save yourself. But even though they weren't asking for it, he still prayed for it. And that is the attitude that we should have. Now, again, like I said at the beginning, everything we've read here tonight, you can't do. You can't do, but God wants to do it through you. We're going to close with 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Listen to what Paul says, this terrorist that got saved by Jesus. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. By the way, if you don't know who it is, he then tells us, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst sinner, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch that? Paul said, I never lose sight of the fact of what I was and what God did to save me. And I keep that in my mind as I share the gospel. He saved me, he'll save you. And I don't see myself as better. Unfortunately, a lot of us Christians who got saved when we were a young baby and been in the church our whole life, we look at the world around us and say, well, I've never been that bad. You don't understand the depth of your sin. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you're able to keep the whole law yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. Because the law said the only way you'll be righteous in God's sight by observing the law is to keep it perfectly once you break one commandment, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Folks, thank God for his mercy. And let me close with this. Make your salvation sure. There's nothing wrong with double checking to make sure Jesus is in you. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? And by the way, one of the ways we'll know whether or not Jesus is in us is whether or not this stuff is ever going to be seen in our life because we can't do it. But if he is, and if you're sitting here tonight and it makes sense, the Spirit of God's opening your eyes to that truth. And I pray everyone here and everyone that's listening is getting ready for that day when Jesus comes to get us. But you don't want him to say, I never knew you. Have you put your full faith in Jesus? I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a great Thanksgiving.